Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery here, and today I'm excited to have Indus Khaitan, who's the founder of Column, a SaaS and cloud spend reduction product founded by Seiko and, Nick, uh, and Nexus. He found a uh, bits of mobile, which was created on the heels of 2008 recession and exited in what was Oracle's first acquisition in mobile. Uh, most recently, he had read he led growth at Chargebee, where revenue grew three three times. He's an alumni of Pillar Institute of Technology. Welcome to the show, Indus. Hey, thanks, Rohit. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You know, uh, before the call, I mentioned uh, you, you're one of the few founders with whom I've interacted before and, and I really, you know, hold you in high esteem, but uh, really interested to know, you know, what caught you into this world of startups and uh, what was your life story all about, you know, since you lived in the, uh, in the India before and now you, you're here in the, U- uh, in the U.S. Yeah, like, I think great question. I think uh, the foundational element there is curiosity is in, hey, I see something new. Hey, can I try it? Or I see a new tech, you know, can I use it to build something? And that remained very foundational as a kid, experimenting with something in the real world to experimenting something now in, in tech and software. I do not remember how I morphed into, or what was the rap, you know, foundational thought or, of morphing from a, just a techie writing code to, hey, let me run this as a business. I was not ready for that, but probably got thrown into that. And, you know, my previous startup was in mobile security where I was not the driver. I happened to know Ali, who was my co-founder, and Naeem, who was the CEO. They were toying with this idea around, you know, building a product for mobile devices and securing data. And uh, Ali one fine day said, hey, do you want to work together? And I said, yeah, that's a cool idea. Let's just do it. And three of us started together, and it was just happy accident that I became a founder uh, with Pizza Mobile, and the startup got acquired. But 2014 to now, that has been a transformational journey where I actually feel that I should start something of my own. You know, the desire becomes much more deeper. Initially, you know, you would land into accidents, happy accidents, or randomness. Somebody else is doing it, and you become part of the journey. But once you go through that with someone else, your own desire just strengthens and you say, hey, this doesn't look like rocket, rocket science. I could do this on my own. And I think that's how I became an entrepreneur. I grew up in India, uh, grew up in a mining town called Dhanbad. Um, well, of course, it goes down in history books because of the mafia there and the bloodshed, you know, two to three people you know, being killed or in homicides on a daily basis because... There's so much money and wealth in in uh, transportation, shipping, and mining of coal. So I grew up there, and then then did my undergrad from Bill Institute of Technology, Meshra, and then became a computer scientist, and then uh, odd jobs here and there, and finally ended up in Silicon Valley, the mecca of uh, innovation. Yeah, no, I I think that that's super interesting, and you know, since since you built you know startups both in uh, in India and US, you know, uh, where do you find the innovation uh, like more? Do you, where do you see you know the Indian startup ecosystem in the next ten years? The Indian startup ecosystem has matured quite a bit. So I was in India. I'll give you an example. I do have numbers in my head. Two thousand eight, there were a total of ten startups that have raised angel money. Ten, 
total 10 angel money in one year, 2008. Today, close to 10,000 startups have raised angel money in the last five, six years. You could see the magnitude uh, is like growth is 1,000% year over year. And I think the next phase is even more deeper for the Indian startup ecosystem. Of course, there are layers there. What happened that if you compare Indian startup ecosystem to Silicon Valley or the US ecosystem, the overall infrastructure is very mature for you to think in terms of design, problem solving, and doing customer acquisition where the value of your software is much more than the value of human labor. India is still very much human labor-driven economy, so the value of software is not, not that much. You, you would be lucky if you would sell a B2B SaaS product and they will look at the ROI. If I could put someone who's going to charge, let's say, 10 lakh rupees a year, which is roughly, what, $5,000, $4,000-ish? Um, no, sorry. 10, 10 lakh rupees is uh, $20,000 ish a year. They will look at the ROI of your software in terms of human labor. Mm-hmm. And hence, I think the next 10 years, my bet is it will not be a tech driven star- startup ecosystem, but real world problems driven. We will see commodities, we'll see food and beverage, we'll see restaurants, we'll see real estate. All of these other non-tech areas will flourish quite dramatically compared to tech because, you know, foundational problems have not been solved. I think there's a lot of opportunity in India in the next 10 years, but I am bullish long-term on India on tech, but more bullish on non-tech sectors such as mining, manufacturing, agri, commodities, and others. Yeah, no, absolutely, totally agree with that. Uh, and uh, you know, you've been part of uh, Charge P, which is uh, a billing partner for SaaS uh, and subscription-based companies. How did you get that opportunity? And you know, um, how did what what was the entire experience building building Charge P? Yeah, this was an interesting phase of my life. So after Bitser Mobile got done, spent a couple of years at Oracle, and I just did some you know random gigs here and there, trying to learn more you know, beyond what I knew at Bitser, I try to figure out how many aspects of customer acquisition is done. One of the areas that always intrigued me is SMB or small and medium business customer acquisition, which is, you know, very organic, very content driven, you know, very referral marketing or, or word to mouth driven. And I had no idea how this worked. I had no idea how con- content marketing worked. So when I found out about Charlesby from someone, and when I looked at their business model, which is fintech plus SMB, I just thought I got to get this. I, I have to become part of this. So luckily, you know, you know, Krish interviewed me and, and Rajaraman. So Krish is the CN founder of uh, Chargebee and Rajaraman co-founder. So they both interviewed me over a period of four months. And then uh, they liked me. And then I went inside. It was just magical what they built. Amazing product, very loved, well-loved design. And of course, a business model, which has a very strong mode, because if you are somebody selling a recurring service, which is software or consumer, you will not unplug. You need revenue coming in. So, you know, very transformational in my journey in terms of the charge experience. Interesting. And, and you, you know, you, you work with bigger companies like, like Oracle. Now, how does one transition, you know, from, uh, from, 
from either a big company to a small company or from small company to to big company i think I, i'll sound very cliched but it is um, your own ability to adapt um, to different environment as in a change that you want to make and another one is the change that you do not want to make is you are naturally very curious you are you have high agency in getting things done you want to pursue whatever innovation or excellence or doing you know new things irrespective of where you are so which is your growth mindset your entrepreneurial dna that does not go away so for me again uh, at oracle for 2 years it was a learning opportunity i did not know anything about sales i got lucky to find mentors in in a sales and product organizations and learned a lot and when i came to charge b i knew that as a smaller organization i cannot have the baggage of a large company i was there to learn so i adapted and then learned a new things and whatever my experience was shared and brought customers using that at charge b uh, i think in the industry people get labeled very easily that you are a big company guy you're a small company guy and unfortunately it is not true a person naturally is not a big company person a person naturally is intellectual is curious he's high agency he's growth minded that's it if you can apply from one place to the other doesn't matter what size of the business it is mm got it and uh and you started off with qualum you know what was why why do you want to build uh you know another company the genesis uh, of this idea came while i was at charge b i saw firsthand how saas adoption was going through the roof if you go back in time like 10 15 or 20 years ago any company would buy software but it would buy only from five or six vendors oracle microsoft sap bmc computer associates that's it handful fast forward to now you buy from hundreds of vendors so i saw this explosion firsthand that you know the number of software startups or companies actually making a difference were not like 10 20 or 50 but like 10000s of them so that was one inflection point second i saw that companies were not using any tools for buying all the tools that were being used or made was for selling so let's say you run a saas startup you are vp of sales you would acquire at least 15 different tools to help you meet your revenue targets yeah now imagine me being a buyer of your tool i don't have any products to evaluate you better to track your success to make sure that if you're not if your product is not being used i can downsize and upsize i am just running blind on spreadsheets right so that com- combined with the growth of saas or explosion kind of gave me this idea that something has to be done and quit charge being the summer of 2019 and started cool hmm got it and and other what the other companies also were trying to solve the problem uh, like uh, truebill or was that a competitor truebill is basically what we do but for the consumer market so we are a b2b saas product we sell to the uh, enterprises truebill is recurring software management or recurring subscription management for consumers they you know analyze your credit card data and they tell you oh you have eight subscriptions for 
watching TV or video on demand and they'll help you cut down. Today I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Uh, you know, I, I want to talk about, uh, uh, you know, especially with what, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, it's it's still a uh, still a big topic because, uh, uh, you know, there are other banks who could, you know, face a similar situation like Sil- Silicon Valley Bank. But uh, especially for founders, you know, what in, what in your view would be the right way to do scenario planning uh, for startup in, in a situation like this? Great question. <laughs> Very controversial two weeks ago when nobody knew what exactly happened, but we kind of now know what happened. It was a self-inflicted wound where the gangrene just opened up for public view. And that basically gave a flavor that this body is going to die. Whereas the wound could have been easily be band-aid and sealed before anybody saw it. I think that was a summary Um we all know what happened. You know, they had some missteps. People came to know about it. It became a rumor uh, fueled across the startup universe, going to go out of business or going to get shut down and people started withdrawing money. All these bank run or protection against bank run were designed like 100 years ago where people stood in line to withdraw. Modern bank runs are online. You put a wire, you put an ACH, right? And as a result of that, the collapse happened. You know, SVB itself was not illiquid as, you know, after reading many of these reports, I found out that they had enough money or they could have managed enough money to give people back. But I think it's the bank run. In terms of scenario planning, I think two things that come out that do not have liquid cash beyond six months sitting in your bank account. Even if things go really bad with a bank, you only lose six months. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not saying you should lose any money in the worst case scenario, but the worst case is you lose six months. And then move that money in FDIC in short up to 100%, like treasury bills, you know, corporate deposits, and other, other instruments that guarantee 100% recovery in terms of, uh, in, a, in a case of sad demise like this that happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Second is at least have a couple of other banks as a backup. Even if you're not transacting, at least have those bank accounts. I'll tell you what happened with a couple of friends of mine. They knew about this. They wanted to withdraw the money. But where would you withdraw if you do not have a bank account? You can't bring it to your personal bank account. They'll be committing other side kinds of suicide, right? And you have to explain later if things do not go as bad. So at least in our case, since we are a fintech as, as Colum SaaS spend management, we were lucky that we, were, we had two or three other bank accounts, and then we were able to move money around. But I think that's one scenario that have six months in your core bank, others, you know, various layers of fixed deposits or corporate deposits or treasury-backed deposits, and then have at least a few other bank accounts where you could transact. The SVB scenario is unpredictable. So even if you bank with, let's say, JP Morgan today, you don't know what's behind the scenes at JP Morgan. It could go bust. 
six months down the road. You know, we are just consumers. We see the front face, what, what the layers of banking regs behind the scenes affecting their business. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and and when it comes to uh, the bank accounts, how much runway would you suggest should be in each of these bank accounts? Like, for example, if you have three bank accounts, uh, what suggestion would you have? I think six months of runway is pretty good in a bank account. I would not split up the money to keep in three bank accounts. Some banks are, are becoming very smart. For example, uh, Mercury Bank launched this feature where you bank with Mercury, but your savings or your you know current account uh, is protected up to $10 million. Now, of course, if you're a large startup with a $10 million monthly burn, that's still very small. But I would say at least depending on the arrangement, couple of banks or the others, you should have six months of runway. If push comes to a shove, you, you are forced to liquidate that. But beyond that six months, you have some deposits in, in CDs or treasury bills or what have you, other instruments where you could liquidate it and get the cash to pay, your, pay the salaries for the next two months. I think the immediate and the next couple of payrolls, that becomes important, but six months is a good buffer. Got it. And, uh, you know, a lot of uh, VCs had, uh, and other founders also given suggestion, like you, a startup should not work with other uh, startup banks. Like you give an example of Mercury, but should startups bank with startup banks as well as with traditional banks, or should they only keep their money with startup banks, uh, with, with, sorry, traditional banks? I would bet on startup banks more than traditional banks any day, because, you know, the founders who have started uh, these modern banks, they are in a much better position to write this. They know about this and they're working relentlessly behind this. I don't have any you know, uh, shares in Mercury Bank. I kind of know Imad through a common friend, but those guys are innovating on a daily basis, right? So in 48 hours, they launch features, which is unheard of. No JP Morgan or Bank of America can launch it in a year. Yeah. And, and these banks are innovating. So I would say, uh, if you really want to protect or have a scenario, then have an alternate arrangement with, let's say, a JP Morgan, where you could keep your illiquid funds there, which you would need, like, say, a week to liquidate. But, you know, bank through Mercury or other, you know, startup banks. Of course, you have to build that trust. Look at the founder. What's the founder's background? Is he trustworthy? Is he looking to make a quick buck? And which is true, not just for a modern bank, but for any startup, even for us, right? So we deal with spend of other companies. If I am not exhibiting trust or I behave like an asshole, nobody's going to put money in my startup or they will never become my customers. I think that applies across the board, irrespective of, you know, whether it's a bank or, you know, general SaaS, SaaS business. All right. And, uh, you know, this year, you know, uh, looks like, you know, there's an impending uh, recession. Um, so, you know, what, what sort of, uh, you know, scenario planning should, should startups do and, you know, what, what would be the right way to communicate the scenario plans to your stakeholders if the founder is not able to raise the next round of funding? I think that's a very real possibility that uh, many startups will struggle. Um, I hate to say this, but most founders, 99% of founders are very optimistic about their next level. And the reason we are founders because we don't look for plan B, which is you know a backup 
of our failure, most of us are building businesses which are not mom and pop. These are venture, high risk, high reward, create something out of thin air, new technology kind of businesses. And as a result of that, we don't aggressively plan a scenario where if things don't go well, what will happen? Uh, and that's a very real case. Um, rationally speaking, I think six months to 12 months of money in the bank is absolutely necessary. Yeah. Uh, let's say US economy probably is already in recession, or maybe in the next quarter, we don't know. But the hope is if things are as bad as being predicted, we come out of this in next 12 months. There's no guarantee. It could last for two years. Recession generally do not last for two quarters. Technically, they do, but the effects of that last for at least two years. We can go back, you know, um, the post-dot-com recession, post-housing market, uh, 1990, 1992, 80 to 83. All of them were like two-year super blips that had a five-year impact. So it's two to three years technicals, and then two to three years of recovery. So it's like four or five years. So even if I have money in the bank for like a year, that's not enough. It's mm -hmm. my optimism that's going to take me there because at least for tech founders, the optimism is software is not going away. Now there's eight to 10% growth year over year in IT consumption, you know, 18 to 20% in SaaS consumption. Of course, I as a startup could fail or I as a founder could fail in the startup, but the long pole is there is still a lot to be done. Got it. And um, I, I, I want to talk about you know, execution, especially you know when you're working in startups. Um, how important is speed of execution, and and you know what can startups do to deliberately increase uh, the speed of execution? Uh, I have a slightly contrarian thought on that. See. Uh, I think the speed of execution is mislabeled. Okay. It's the speed of execution at the right time. I think you have to be the judge. Is this the right time to push the pedal to go 120 miles an hour or be cautious? And I'll give you a visual on it. So let's say you're driving through a hairpin bend, which is a 40 degree bend. If you go at 120 miles an hour, your car is going to fly off the hill and fall into the ditch. But if you have a flat land, if you see sunrise, you have 10 miles of visibility, you want to go 120 miles an hour because you know you're going to speed up and catch up. So the speed of execution is a timing question. Is this the time in my journey of a startup where I'm going to go 120 miles an hour versus thoughtfully build what you're building, and go full scale. And I'm not just giving you this, this statement, but I'll give you our example. We started by 19. In our initial discovery with the CFOs, CFOs are our targets in terms of potential customer. Everybody said, yep, this is interesting. I love that you are solving the spend management problem, but I'm not going to buy this now. And I asked why. I said, hey, there is money. My, my boss, which is a CEO and the board is rewarding me for managing revenue, not managing my spend. So if it is not their uh, readiness, me pushing and shoving a product which was not ready at high speed, acquiring salespeople to sell, 
it'll be burning cash. And maybe I'll acquire a few million in revenue, but I'll burn through faster. Should I be doing that? I did not. Versus 2022 January, or, or March rather, when there was a softness in the tech economy, you know, people were talking about, oh, there's going to be correction in valuations. All of a sudden, we found product market fit. That was nothing that we did. We had a product that was being built, features were being ready. There were some beta customers. And all of a sudden, customers started asking, hey, can I use this? Uh, sorry, I didn't pick up your phone last time. Can I talk to you? So I think, and when we found that product market fit, we went full speed. Now we have a five-people sales team. Our revenues have gone up and we are kind of at the next level of growth. If I had done that two years ago, you, you and I wouldn't be talking about Colum. We will be talking about my next startup that I'm thinking about. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Interesting, you talked about you know urgency when it comes to uh, when it comes to sales. So I wanted to wanted to understand you know when when you're taking up a meeting with the, with a CFO with your ICP, how do you generate that sense of urgency so that you know you could close out more deals? This is me, you know, talking because I'm, I'm in sales and business development. But what advice would you give to me? if I'm looking to you know, create that sense of urgency? I think you have to look at two or three things to triangulate that urgency. A, what is the macro picture? And for us, for example, at Colum, the macro picture is there's a softness in the tech economy. You have to control your spend. That's number one. Number two, you create urgency. If I'm selling a security product, I would say, hey, attack vectors increasing, more and more uh, websites and identities getting compromised. Do you not want to secure it? In our case, we don't use the security as an urgency. We say, hey, more and more SaaS tools in your enterprise, you do not know what you're spending, who's using. Do you not want to see the visualization? And third is look at the overall timing, saying, hey, you know, softness in the economy leading to recession, you'll not have enough money. Do you not want a tool that will give you the answer now rather than waiting for six months because you've already lost that six months of cash that you could get from reducing the spend. So, and then you triangulate. I'll give you one example how we do it, at least from a number of tools. So we there's a, you know, there are multiple sites that will tell you what tools a company has. So what we do is we take a screenshot. Hey, you have sales for Jira, Figma, uh, uh, and also have Asana notion and say, hey, do you realize that you have four duplicate tools doing exactly the same thing? And the CFO would say, how do you know this? Mm. I did not know this. Yeah. And that creates a sense of urgency. So you have to shock people in a nice, polite way about the facts that present in their org, but they are not aware of. Mm. Okay. Okay. That's, that's uh, smart. Um, uh, yeah, you know, you, you've had, uh, you know, um, uh, engineering team as well as sales team. Um, what is the structure for interviewing? Uh, you know, for for sales reps or the pro- product guys in in your team, uh, and how would you really test for you know grit and curiosity uh, during the during the interview process? 
Because sales interviews are the hardest because yes, they are the reason they're successful salespeople because they know how to sell, right? Yeah. Kind of obvious. I think I, I go back in time. I look at what they have done. Were they in, were they in sports? Uh, did they run a basketball team? Were, a co- were they an assistant coach? Or did the guy play college football? It doesn't matter what level it is, but was he or she in a team playing and doing something away from the resume? Second, very important point aligning to that is what is in the resume or not on the resume that is not in their line of duty, which is the nine to five job. And that will set your candidate apart. If the guy is only looking or the gal is only looking for instructions from her boss saying, oh, do this, do that. You found a potential person who could do the job, but not for a startup of 20. Because in a startup of 20 people, job descriptions are amorphous. You know, people could be doing hundreds of things. Uh, I may not have time as a founder to give, give a chat and give direction, have a chat and give directions, but can the person be self-driven and things that they do outside of their line of duty, which is their daily job, tells you a lot about the person. Same thing, fortunately, is also applicable for engineering. You know, look at their GitHub repos, look at any awards they have done uh, or, or they have won because of a project they have done in summer. Uh, what naturally excites them? Are they right? writers beyond writing code, writers in the, they are doing social media, then in Quora. So not overly judging them on the quality outside of the line of duty, but effort that he's trying to do so many things. And that's a driver. Grit is slightly hinging to those answers, but it could also be misconstrued as somebody knowing how to fake the resume. Because people know that smart recruiters look for these traits and people can just create a random GitHub project or clone a repository, make a few comments and call it, hey, I did this project, not actually doing anything about it. So you have to be very careful in parsing out, is it grit which has been faked or is it grit which is real? Uh, Follow through is also important. You know, candidates showing up on time, uh, responding to questions that have been sent, offline assignments that have been given, especially for sales. Yeah. Um, they have they sent back, have they done more than what they're asked to do? I think that's how I would triangle it, but not easy for sales, I must tell you. Mm, got it. And um, and what, what uh, how should a, a sales team onboarding be structured, uh, especially if it's a sales rep who's getting onboarded? What, how would you structure their onboarding? I think that onboarding has to be driven by a product onboarding first. So I'll give you an example. So we onboarded a few uh, team members recently. I spent quite a bit of time telling them about the product, about our story, why we exist. What does the competition do? You know, going to the competition website, scrolling through, letting them collect the objections getting them to hear the transcripts or recordings of previous calls to customers, uh, having them dial these calls on their own or sending, like if you are an outbound SDR team, send some of those emails, see what the responses are. So product and then really hitting the metal on day two or day three and getting an experience of what it is, getting them to shadow on some of these 
customer, real customer demos. You know, for example, you and I, let's say we're doing a sales uh, demo, you know, getting the rep to kind of shadow saying, hey, this is how it works. Right. So from day two, you want to get them into an action. I think that's what we did. Okay. Okay. Got it. And uh, you know, before the call, we 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 talked about AI, and you know, uh, you know, ChatGPT has really uh, been a force in the last uh, in the last few 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 weeks. Um, and you know, do you think AI would replace SaaS products? And you know, you've also come up with a AI uh, SaaS uh, SaaS pens tool. But what are your thoughts on AI, and how is you know, how are you using AI to you know? Uh, improve your improve your business. I think AI is, to a large extent, reduced the drudgery of buying software products. So I'll give you an example. If you're selling software, it's so much hand-to-hand combat. You have to do a demo, uh, respond to an RFP, send a price quote, uh, answer objections, you know, respond to security questionnaire, uh, and then do another set of round with other stakeholders negotiate on pricing, negotiate on commercials. It takes between 5 to 8% of your revenue to manage that and then collect payments. And if they're falling behind, send them a collections agency. And it's a pain. Right. You'd be very surprised. Same thing repeats on the buyer side. You know, the, co- the corollary task of exactly the same thing, sending an RFP response, you know, or questionnaire or negotiating on pricing. Why can't we automate it? Why can't we make the buying process simpler? Not just buying as in click on the button and check out. There is more to buying before and after. What has been automated is add to cart and pay by card. That's it. The other two edges are still virgin. I think there's a lot to be done and AI would help. In our case, we are trying to experiment with that. At least you know, reduce the friction of buying, reduce the friction of discovery. So we launched this. Uh, GPT-based um, chat assistant, which we're calling a spend copilot or column SaaS spend copilot, it is essentially replacing a website. So you, you go there and say, hey, what do you guys do? Do you have a job open? Are you SOC 2 compliant? Tell me about your competition. Do you have customers? What's a case study on this? How can I save money? So instead of you trying to go through a minefield of clicks and discovery, where is this content? You just type your intent, it responds. And next level of that is automating the buying experience saying, oh, I love it. Can I see a demo? And then the demo happens. Okay, can I consume it into a relationship? Okay, a checkout happens. It's much seamless than a hyper-designed website trying to suck you into a traditional marketing funnel and then convert you into an opportunity. Very interesting, and uh, you know, I also found out that uh, you, you you love playing, you know, uh, flying your own plane, which is a single engine Cessna one seventy two. So how how did that you know uh, that hobby start, and uh, and you fly you know quite regularly? So that hobby started just uh, you know every kid ever took a airplane ride. Say, hey, I want to sit there. I want to ride this seven four seven someday. So I think that imagination had always been in the back of my mind. And what happened was in 2018 or 2017, so we moved to this place uh, where I live now, which is like a mile away from a local municipal airport. Oh. And 
Fortunately, my home is in the flying pattern of, uh, you know, a touch and go being done by other pilots, like every hour this plane goes by. And one fine day, I just went and took a discovery flight. And then one thing led to the other, and then I became a regular. But more than that, I, I realized this thing that I am no longer a young 20-something. Uh, my muscles, both externally and internally, my gray matter are kind of getting loosened and fading away. Doing something new, like learning a language or flying a plane, is to keep those muscles invigorated and charged up. And for me, it was a totally out-of-the-world experience just learning that because you're not driving a car, which, you know, if you, you know, stop on the gas, you just, you know, be on the road, not move. But flying a plane is like a 3D video game. You have to manage the three axes of a plane to not let it fall from the sky. So you have to be hyper-aware, listening to what the ATC is saying, watching the screen, you have 20 plus instruments that you have to manage every second. And that teaches you something about life. You have to be in the moment. You have to be present. You can't even think about your children on the, on the ground or about your friends elsewhere. You have to just do the flying bit. Out of the world. I love it that I'm incredibly lucky that I bought the home here and live here, which kind of excited me to go and try it, try it out. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, that's super interesting. And, and I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Very incidentally, I'm reading this book by Danny Meyer, who is the founder and CEO of Shake Shack, uh, Shake Shack, which is a fast food chain serving burger, fries, and uh, uh, and milkshake. The book is called Setting the Table. It's not here. It's on my nightstand at, in my bedroom. It's called Setting the Table. Essentially, it's a book about how the restaurant industry works. Uh, what is the what What does restaurant industry customer service looks like? how customers behave, how do you build a business. After reading a chapter or every chapter, I feel that we in tech are so privileged. We, we do our mistakes and we can go and correct it. In a restaurant business, there's no second chance. And he tells the story very vividly as a child growing up in, in a New York neighborhood, New Jersey area, and then you know, building this chain of restaurants, not just one, but he's done it many times over. So that's the book I'm reading right now. Halfway through, amazing read. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes. And you know, if you could go back in time when you when you started building Qualum, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? So Qualum sells to the CFO or the CFO's office. Unfortunately, I have a very limited CFO network. I don't know many CFOs. If I have to start Qualum early uh, again. I would first have to build a network, put myself inside that network, talk to the CFOs, learn how accounting works. <laughs> we did not even know how accounting works. If I do again, I'll go back to school for like three months, learn some of these basic ropes of you know, how finance works, how accounting works, get, in my, get myself inducted into a you know, CFO network. That's how I would start again. Mm, awesome. And, and you have any uh, favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? We can't live without uh, some of these tools. So Gmail, everyday basis. Uh, I use Asana for managing my work with other colleagues. We use Slack internally for collaboration, Zoom for video communication. Uh, Apple is magical. So now I'm slowly kind of moving to Apple. For example, I use Notes very heavily uh, for taking daily journal entries. I used to use Evernote earlier, but 
that tools faded away, it became broken and beyond repair. So moved to Apple Notes app. These are some of my favorites in personal and professional life. Well, we'll put that in the show notes. And, um, and as what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more, more about Colum? Yeah, I am Indus Khaitan. Uh, Google me, find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, connect me there. Colum is Q-U-O-L-U-M.com. Our AI co-pilot is Colum.ai. So try that out. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes. Indus, thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you, Rohit, for having me. Great chatting with you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.